Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, hello, hello. It's the end of the week. It's time to do the nose, where we talk about cultural issues and usually at least one cultural product, if that's the right word. That seems like an unkind term. I do want to say as we're heading into the show, as we're doing it live on Friday, uh, as many of you maybe know, Salman Rushdie was attacked on stage in western New York. He appears to have been stabbed. I am hoping that bad news doesn't come shuttling across during the next hour. In fact, I'm hoping that good news comes shuttling across in the next hour. But it's certainly there on my mind anyway. Today we are going to talk about other stuff, though. We're going to talk about the question of whether whether James Franco uh, playing Fidel Castro uh, in a movie about Castro's daughter is kind of an affront uh, to Latino actors. We're going to talk about the I don't know. I guess sort of reports of HBO's death were greatly uh, exaggerated, HBO Max's death. Uh, There's been a lot of talk over the last week or so about what's going on over there, why they uh, shelved entirely the Batgirl movie, why they've been pulling some of their own products off the site, off the streaming site. Uh, We'll explain a little bit more about that and what it might portend uh, for the future of the stream apocalypse that we're living through right now. And then we're going to talk about something that actually is on the HBO Max site. That is the rehearsal, a very, very peculiar series helmed, as they say, in variety by Nathan Fielder, who actually also stars in it uh, and is, I think we could all agree, probably a very peculiar person in real life as well. Okay, so who's going to do all this talking? You may well ask. Sam Hattleman, who works in music public relations and hosts the Sam Hattleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean, S-H-A-W-N, if you're searching for it, podcast. Uh, and Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Yes, we are beginning with the movie Alina of Cuba. Uh, it is said to be about Fidel Castro's exiled daughter, Alina Fernandez. Uh, it is uh, being produced and directed and written and acted in by a largely Latino or Latinx cast, the exception being that James Franco, uh, who is not, uh, has been cast to play Fidel Castro. This has uh, um, excited some criticism with John Leguizamo probably leading the way uh, with a tweet, a much quoted and retweeted tweet. How is this still going on? How is Hollywood excluding us? but stealing our narratives as well. No more appropriation, Hollywood and streamers. Boycott, uh, I can't quote that next part, uh, this effed up, I can say, yeah, actually, but plus seriously difficult story to tell without aggrandizement, which would be wrong. I don't got a problem with Franco, but he ain't Latino. So, um, I don't know, Irene, get us started on this. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we all had slightly different takes, but what is yours? Um, okay, well, I guess in theory, it would be interesting to see James Franco try to play Fidel Castro. But I think given the fact that we have hardly seen any American movies uh, starring him as a character, I think it's I have to agree with John Leguizamo. I mean, I, I, I it, there's so many Latino actors who would do a great, you know, a fantastic job. So why him? I, I don't get it. 
So right. That's should, my first, yeah. Okay. So that's, uh, yeah, I, I, maybe everybody's going to feel the same way. Although I may actually differ with this a little bit. So, But let's sort of, we'll, we'll pull the table. So Sam, how, how about you? What's your take on this? I'm just not sure who thought this was a good idea. Like, I'm not sure how this idea escaped the boardroom. Like, James yeah. Franco, someone who has been battling sexual assault allegations for the better half of the decade, coming in to play a character of an ethnicity that he is not. And then if you actually, like, read why they say they picked him, we said they said, uh, we used Fidel Castro's ancient Galatian herald, I can't even say that word, as our focal compass. Like, it just sounds so odd. So many words to just say, hey, we didn't think this through. Or, like, sometimes I think, like, incendiary decisions like this made by companies is, are, like, purposefully made to rile us up for, like, conversations like this. But I, I just can't understand how someone could support this. Right. Although I don't think that this one is an intentional act of trolling. If you're going to make this movie, you're not going to probably want Latinx ticket buyers to be really mad about. Uh, but, but Or maybe, who knows? I, you know, if I were that smart, I'd be making movies. Uh, yeah, Sean, how about you? I'm just curious uh, as about, like, like when's the last time James Franco has been good or something, let alone... <laughs> well, that's like, a separate question. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a very important question. Like, why cast a, a guy who's not good? Like, I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, he's... Uh, the, the sexual assault allegations and I mean confirmed things that he's done are uh, are awful, and his uh, his his race is a big issue. But it's also like so. It's a it's a the reason I say it's important is because it's threefold. He's a bad actor. Uh, he's not Cuban, and he's a bad guy. Like this this is a no brainer. Don't pick this guy. I mean, I guess you need a star. I mean, but it's also like is this movie gonna be like a blockbuster? No. So it's not like you need a star to get it made. I mean, like. I don't understand what the what the the thought process was to get a James Franco. I don't know. I'm maybe it's just me. Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, I, I totally agree that the world will be would be fine if James Franco does not play Fidel Castro. I'm not necessarily looking forward to that. Uh and and I think you guys have sort of mustered some pretty good reasons not to cast him in something like this. I mean, the two penetrating reasons for me is, yeah, he doesn't really seem to be all that terrific these days. It's been a while since you were really brought up short by one of his really good performances. Uh, and then there's the, the sexual assault stuff. I mean, there's a little part of me that that feels like, well, first of all, we should say that one person whose opinion should count for something uh, is the person whose life story is the basis uh, of this movie. Uh, the movie, let's bear in mind, is called Alina of Cuba, and Alina Fernandez thinks James Franco is a great choice. She is uh, Castro's exiled daughter. Uh, she thinks that in terms of looks. And, so, I mean, you know, that's sort of one precinct heard from. I just, look, I... I like John Leguizamo, too. I, I enjoyed him as Tybalt, which is not a particularly Latino role in, in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. That I, I, I understand that what's gone on with representation has been horrible, you know, where, I mean, for years we had non-Native American people playing Native Americans in, in Westerns, and we, we had Jonathan Price playing somebody Vietnamese in a Broadway musical. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that that's really bad. Um and, and we've got to do something about it. And, and it certainly makes sense to 
to squeeze the brakes down on that, you know, nine tenths of the way and say, hold on, you know, let's when we can, uh, we, you know, we shouldn't make this mistake and commit this injustice. But I also feel like, you know, there should be some room for creative casting too. look at Hamilton. Hamilton is just an amazing thing. All these people of color playing all these, you know, white founding fathers and, 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 and other related persona. Uh, and I mean, and we love it. And there's certainly, you know, nothing particularly wrong about it. Just there's something intensely creative about it. I thought that the crap that uh, that uh, Lin-Manuel took for uh, for In the Heights, the movie version where some of the Hispanic actors' skin wasn't dark enough and all this kind of stuff, I just thought, you know, it's just, uh, you know, there's that, I mean, Irene, I guess there's a certain amount of box ticking, you know, that goes on, checking off boxes. And, and I'd like the arts to be a little bit more subtle than that. I agree. There's nothing lost by kicking James Franco out of the cast of this movie. Uh, but I don't want it to turn into a thing where you've got to submit some kind of, you know, ethnic proof for every single role ever. Um, I do agree, but we are in a very particular important moment right now where we're we're sort of re-examining everything. So having people of color play white roles is different from having white people play Fidel Castro. You know, I, I mean, we, it, it, that's just a fact. You know, ideally, it shouldn't be like that. Ideally, it would be great to have, you know, creative casting in that way. But there just are so few roles for Latino men. And here one comes along and they're, you're going to give it to a white person. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't know. Anybody else want to respond to that? We're going to have to move on to HBO pretty quickly here. But yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, I mean, like, look at the power dynamics of Hollywood. Uh, West Side Story, they had to color people's faces brown because they wouldn't cast Hispanic actors. Uh, you had Al Pacino playing a Hispanic guy for the better half of the 80s. Like we we already we've done this for like a hundred years, and I don't know the, if the power dynamics are really going to change. It does kind of take an overcorrecting, which involves not casting a thirty-five-year-old creep who had his best role in Freaks and Geeks <laughs> as as Fidel Castro. I, I don't I can't believe I have to say that sentence out loud. But the reason why he hasn't been good <laughs> is because people haven't been casting him because he's a creep. Like it's not like I, I don't know. It just it. I think that they did that just to make us mad. Right. I can't argue with that. All right, Sean, you get the last word. Um. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. You know, like you want to see creative casting, but is this creative? Like, I mean, like it's like it's like like it, no. That's what I'm saying. Like it's <laughs> it's not it's not particularly like a uh, like a sort of left field choice it's i mean it's left field in the sense that like this guy is not cuban so anything that's not cuban would be left field for, like you know what i mean like but as far as like a good selection for an actor i don't, I don't know like I, I i i would love to see like oscar isaac or something i don't think he's cuban either though so you know what I mean? but like <laughs> yes it would be great if there was a, a, a hispanic in the role uh or a latino or a latinx person rather but um i, I don't I don't care. Just think about this. Like, no one's going to even see this movie. So why does anyone even care? Like, like, <laughs> like, like the point you made is perfect. The daughter said, yeah, he's perfect. Okay, but that's the end of the story. She's the one who's getting the movie made. Why does anyone care? You know what I mean? Like, this doesn't matter. People are upset about this. That will never see this movie or any of the movies made by this production company, probably, because they don't want, they're going to go watch Thor 5. Who cares? My auxiliary brain, Jonathan McPants, has just told me that Oscar Isaac is Guatemala, which, I mean, I'm, I think we have to stop here. I do want to say that, you know, the more that you get plunged into the sort of Latinx community, the more you become aware that not everybody 
is comfortable with, the, with that idea too of a Guatemalan people person being interchangeable with a real life Cuban oh, person, sure. or, or I mean Latinx people really kind of often resent, particularly Cuban people. <laughs> I think resent the idea that that everybody's kind of the same. Um, all right, we got to move on here, uh, Sean. Uh, we've been hearing all kinds of stuff about HBO Max. Uh, they were heading into an earnings uh, call. Uh, last week, uh, there were questions about uh, talk about a loss to culture. I mean, we might we might wind up not getting James Franco as uh, as Fidel Castro and not being able to see Batgirl. So, like, what's the point of even living? Um, but so there was sort of that. There were some questions about their finances. Uh, suddenly, all kinds of not necessarily treasured HBO Max products were disappearing from HBO Max. So uh, and there was like, you know, even like, wow, is it just imploding? Is it going to go away? That's obviously not the case. But I don't know, what do you make of all this? And, and particularly maybe the, the most headlined decision was, and it wasn't just Batgirl, it was Scoob 2 or Scoob Holiday something or other, <laughs> some kind of animated thing that I don't even really understand. Uh, but just shelving that stuff, not even putting it on like Tubi or Pluto <laughs> or, or Fubo <laughs> or all those fast uh, channels that sound like, you know, practice squad dwarves or something. Um, all right. So, Sean, take it, take this away from me. Um. I mean, it was a stab in the heart to hear that Scoob 2 was, was shelved. I mean, who who among us was not clamoring for Scoob 2? Like, I, I mean, I agree. Uh, it's 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 a, a, a S show over there, if you will, um, the HBO right now. But, I mean, I'm more, my takeaway from it is, like, I wish I had the accountant that these people have when they're like, oh, I could just make an $80 million movie and not put it out, and that's better for me financially. Like, I don't understand how that works, and I never will because I'll never be, like, make enough money to even have those kind of concerns. But, like, I don't know what they're doing over there. Like, like some of the best stuff I've seen, HBO Max had become, to me, the best streaming service, like, uh, and then they're just throwing it away for like Discovery Channel and stuff. There's some good stuff on there, but it's like, like I don't know. The Sopranos is good. Like you know, like make more of that kind of stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Well, uh, one thing that you have in common, uh, Sean, with HBO or at least the the parent company, uh, the new generation Warner, you both have. $53 billion in gross debt. Uh, now, most of that is on your Chase, uh, Chase Visa card right now. But that's really true, though, uh, about Warner. So we should just actually quickly set the stage here and say uh, what happened from 2018 to the present was that AT&T decided it wanted to own a big content company. They got Warner with all the things that go with it, including HBO. Then they turn, it turns out they hate running something like that. They have no corporate culture for it. They got rid of it as quickly as they could. And then Discover, which is not a big player really in the content universe at all, at least I didn't think so, went into extreme debt in order to purchase um, the entire Warner brand, including HBO. That's where they are now. They've got, they really do have $53 billion and gross debt. Um, so they can't have bad quarters under that, those circumstances. So they're kind of making some interesting decisions. I don't know, Sam, how, how does all this land with you? I mean, it's just not main, like sustainable. Like the streaming model, especially with what happened with the pandemic, so many movies going direct to streaming and how that affected production companies. Like we have entered a time where it's kind of unprecedented with entertainment across the board. And it's weird because I personally feel like we're right now in a TV golden age. Like there's a million TV shows I'm really interested in, especially on HBO Max. So it's weird that 
they're putting so much stock in making legacy franchise shows like three and a half hour episodes of Stranger Things when the answer is right there. Just make better content. Um, but I just I don't think that this model is sustainable for production companies, for actors, for fans. And now, especially for Netflix, they lost what a million subscribers going down the sec for the same two quarters something i i took one business class um i <laughs> i uh i i just don't i i don't think that there's a logical answer to how all, this whole thing ends or turns out right well one one thing that we can say based on what was said at the earnings call and what's been said subsequently is that the 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 person who's running all this right now a guy named zaslav uh wants to basically make things a little bit more like they used to be he wants to if he's going to make a movie uh, if his company's going to make a movie, he wants to release it into movie theaters, squeeze that lemon as long as they can, and then probably put it into some kind of, you know, either pay-per-view or video on demand or something, uh, squeeze that lemon, and then maybe he'll put it up on, on HBO Max. But he doesn't want to make movies that are going to go straight to streaming because those it's, it's a very expensive pro- process. And in the case of Batgirl, a very, very expensive pro- pro- uh, progress, process. And, and then what, do you, what have you got? I mean, and this has been the model that they've been pursuing for a while on one of their other, one of their other executives uh, developed something called the Popcorn Project which was the idea was that movies would be released to HBO Max and the movie theaters almost simultaneously, if not simultaneously. Before that, it was things were going straight to HBO Max. And the whole idea was to build up subscribers. But it's hard to build up subscribers these days because there are so many different uh, competing streaming companies. Most of the growth is coming overseas now. Uh, And so I, I don't know. So Irene... What's what's your reaction yeah. to all this? <laughs> well, as a viewer, yeah, yeah, as a viewer, I mean, it's yeah. I feel you know. I think it's really interesting the idea to to just release it to only to release it for theaters first because I'm thinking that I'm lazy. We're all lazy, you know, and it's really hard to get your get to maybe to go to a mu- movie theater when you know you can just turn on the TV and watch it there instead. Um, and, but I, I love movie theaters and I want to go to movie theaters, you know, and I don't want them to die and go away. And so I kind of like the idea of saying, no, you have to see it in the movie if you really want to see it when it comes out, um, just to get people out of the house, because otherwise we're just all going to, everybody's just going to stay in their house all the time. Everyone who can afford HBO anyway, you know, uh, and, and, and I think there's something really, um, destructive to our culture and society about people just doing that you know and so I want to go out more to theaters and so I if I I, so I like the idea even though part of me says oh can I just stay home couldn't wouldn't it be better if I could just stay home you know um so so that's one reaction you know and but and I want to also Sam said you know they should make better content and I think it's interesting to think about who gets to decide what better content is you know there's like the smart HBO content which people really like, but for some reason, the the business people seem to think that people like stuff that is just kind of less, you know, good. And why is that? You know, if they could just keep making good stuff, they could get people to watch, watch it if they marketed it correctly, instead of assuming a much lower uh, standard that people have. I just don't, I don't believe that people have a lower standard, but I think that the, the business people think, oh, it's not going to sell if it's, you know, about these, you know, a certain kind of niche audience, but things do sell things. And then they're surprised, you know, when people like material that that they thought they wouldn't like. 
Right. Although so if people didn't, deciding what's good. Yeah, yeah. If people also didn't have somewhat lower standards, we wouldn't be heading into season two of F Boy Island uh, on HBO of all places. So, but yeah, you know, but people watch it because it's there, right? They, if something well, no, else you, you, there, can, you can watch anything else. You can you can yeah, go all over well. the place and watch things. Cat, Cat Pastor, right. by the way, is very excited about season two of F Boy Island. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, Sean, one thing that we did talk about earlier today as we were kind of conversing by email is that kind of notion of curation. And HBO used to be the best at that. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily still are, but that was the place that you went for The Sopranos, for Six Feet Under, for Game of Thrones, for I'm now I'm blanking on all the rest of them. There's a lot of really good, really good stuff. A lot of it was driven by a guy named Richard Plepler. Sheila Nevins was their great um, documentary curator. And and I do feel as though the AT&T era was about, all right, well, what can we make that can get a lot of people to watch it? And I don't think we necessarily, you know, have to be making great work, works of art, to Irene's point, to do it. And And I do feel as though... I don't know. You've got to pick a lane at some point, whether you're HBO or Apple or whoever you are. Yeah, you you got to pick a lane. But I think there was even in the AT and T era, like with, uh, I think there was still. I mean, obviously, I think there's still great stuff on HBO, and I think they still probably have the highest success rate, even with being diluted by stuff like F Boy Island season two. Shout out to <laughs> the the casting crew of that show. Um, I'm sure they're all lovely, well-adjusted people, but, um, I think, I think the issue is like, like for me, it's like, why dilute the brand? Like, like, because has, has HBO ever had an issue with people watching? Like the whole point is that like HBO, of course, was not going to get view- like this, like the Sopranos or the wire or succession doesn't get the same amount of viewers as NCIS, but they get the Emmys, they get the, the critical praise, they get like, like I've never seen someone talk about an NCIS episode in the wild ever. Like no one, like no, it, it's just it just leaves your brain immediately, and that's how it's designed. Like I, I talk about The Wire almost on a weekly basis. I talk about Sopranos on a weekly basis. Like these shows are important. I think that's the thing that bothers me is like why not want to sustain this sort of prestige? Talk about the prestige TV era. I mean, they were they, they HBO originated uh, prestige TV. True. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, with stuff like Succession, uh, they continue to do that. Um, I, I, Sam, as we're getting ready to wrap up here, one thing that you were talking about, I think, as we were emailing around earlier today is sort of physicals. You know, I mean, you, your generation, in a way, has grown up with the idea that nothing really exists anywhere. Everything's on the cloud or in the stream or, or something like that. And then when you pile COVID on top of that uh, and nobody can really go anywhere, uh, it gets even worse. Uh, and I'm wondering what will happen uh, for millennials and Gen Z people, you know, if they start to crave. I, I said in the emails, don't be surprised if Blu-rays tick up at a certain point, partly because these companies need to squeeze the lemon. They need a fourth lemon to squeeze. And and partly because maybe people would just want to own something and then they don't have to subscribe to eight different platforms. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, TV cyclical, like we're, we're just essentially going to end up in the bundle era again, which is going to be like c- cable. Like we're just going to kind of like what Disney's doing with Hulu. Um, but during the pandemic, like I really valued my physical stuff because I thought about it and I was like, oh, my God, if my Internet turns off. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. Thank God I'm stuck in the house with my Simon and Garfunkel reissues. Um, also, you have to remember that the nostalgia complex ushered in by Urban Outfitters is so huge. And at some point, cassettes are coming back. I think Blu-rays are going to come back, too, just because, I don't know, the, I think that there's a counterculture amongst like a lot of young people that, okay, everybody's doing streaming. Let me be cool and get Blu-ray. Like, 
oh, have you, yo, you've seen Wes Anderson movies on Netflix? Well, do you own the Blu-ray? Um, I'm a Blu-ray collector. I shoot film. I have vinyls because I like to physically touch stuff. I like to have stuff that I can see that I tangibly own. And I think that that sentiment's kind of spread across a lot of people. So I could definitely see Blu-rays or even like VHS is coming back for some reason. Right. Actually, this is good news for you, Sam. I did this morning. I mailed to you all of my floppy disks. So you're, you're going to have those too. Just go nuts. Do whatever you want with them. Uh, they, they make great. And boxes of books yeah, too. Right. The, the floppy just make great coasters. Um, all right. So we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We have been watching, I think it's fair to say, a fairly p- perplexing series on HBO Max. Yes. We'll be back to talk about the rehearsal. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. All right, we are back. Uh, HBO uh, Max is now hosting uh, a series called The Rehearsal. I guess there's a new episode dropping today. Most of us, I think, have seen the first four episodes. It is almost impossible to describe this, but let me try. Uh, Nathan Fielder, who is sort of regarded as one of the kings of cringe comedy these days, a kind of comedian, Canadian auteur who did a series called Nathan For You, um, and who also I think was the executive producer of that John Wilson in New York series, which I really like a lot. Um, he has launched this series, the premise of which is that people who have not had actual life experiences might benefit from obsessively rehearsing for them. Uh, and so what he purports to do, he finds people on Craigslist who who have some kind of issue or some kind of crossroads in life that they are coming to, whether it's confessing something to a friend or becoming a parent uh, or anything in between. Uh, and he offers to help them rehearse it. This involves at times building sets that look like meticulously, obsessively, uh, look like the place the ultimate decision would have to be made or look like the dream the person has of a place to make that decision. Uh, and then that whole idea, uh, well, then he recruits actors. I have to say this part. He recruits actors to play not only sort of the, the key people who will participate in this real life thing that's going to happen at some point, but also just extras to populate these sets or real life locations. Uh, and 
<laughs> and I have to stop there because it really starts to get much, much, much more complicated. And I don't think there's much of a concern about spoilers here, but it becomes a sort of series of Russian nesting dolls where one rehearsal starts to sit inside another rehearsal, which is sitting inside a, another rehearsal. And you really have to almost take notes or something to make sure you don't get lost in, in these different kind of versions of reality. Uh, anyway, so – I don't know. Sean, I've just done a very poor job of describing this series. But can you tell people a little bit more about either how you're reacting to it or or what you think is going on here? Um, we, well, yeah, first of all, I, I, I love it. I, I love Nathan Fielder. I loved uh, Nathan For You. Uh, I, I thought it was so funny and so smart. Uh, and I think this show is so effective for me because I would have been totally satisfied with a version of this show, which was just like a case of the week where he um he does a new rehearsal each week and uh with a new cast uh, with a new citizen and a, a new issue and he's sort of doing that but then like the carryover from the second episode with uh if you haven't seen the show there's a, a woman who wants to see what it would be like to have a child so he you know hires a bunch of children that could replace her uh could play her child and then also um he at some point becomes her fake husband very complicated but like then that carries over into each episode so far, so it's not just um, just a case of the week. And it's it's brilliant. It's so because like he he thinks out everything. Like he like it's literally every like permutation of like a possible event. He's got it figured out ahead of schedule, and that could be an editing thing. But even then, I, I appreciate the product. It's so well presented, and it's it it. People are upset online about like is is Nathan Fielder Fielder a jerk? Is he is he laughing at these people? And it's like of course he's laughing at these people, but he's also like they signed up for this. Like it's it's absurd thing to sign up for in the first place. So it's like I think it's okay to laugh, you know. And it's like it's also okay to criticize him for it. But it's like it's okay. Like Borat was mean too, but like that was one of the funniest movies I've ever seen at the time. Right, and I think also it's worth noting. We're going to play a clip right here. It's worth noting that. I, you know, this isn't an excuse for everything, but he's clearly laughing at himself as well. And also at times playing kind of a more of a monster than he probably really is. I can give an, an example right. of that later. But uh, here's a little bit of what this sounds like. This is from the first episode. This, as Sean just suggested, is really the only kind of bottle episode I think they're going to do. It, it, it sits all by itself. It's about a guy named Cor Skeet. Uh, he he is an obsessive player of trivia games at various bars, uh, and he has somebody that he often plays those games with, uh, and he has falsified his academic credentials to her, just conversationally made her made it seem as though he has a master's degree when he doesn't. And he's obsessing uh, about how he could ever possibly break the truth to her. Anyway, let's hear a little bit of that. Every detail was meticulously replicated this time. Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh. This spice rack, it's the exact spices they have, the garlic, yeah. the basil. This chair is an exact, this, these wow. ribs. Wow. Yeah, and that, even, even that's um, well, exactly the way it is. The, the portrait kind of tilts. You see that balloon there? That's in the real bar. Wow. It'll be like walking in in a normal level and then being able to know my bearings. When you show up on the actual night, it'll feel just like this. Yeah. No surprises. No. You know everything that's going to happen. There's something strange about entering a space that's indistinguishable from another. 
In moments, you can forget where you are. To me, it's like, it's a little surreal at times because, I mean, it's like you're the, um, you're, you're Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. I'm Charlie Bucket trying to get the... I don't remember the plot fully. What did Willy Wonka do? Was he good? Well, he, he created... Was he a bad guy? Well, he had some questionable things. I'll, I'll read the book again just to, to, to look into it. So, I don't know. There, there's, that was very funny. There's a lot to laugh at here. I mean, Irene, I wanna make, I'm, I'm really intrigued by your reaction to all this because there's a, there's a sort of anti-Papulian quality to the premise of this in the sense that my sense of you is that you, you do enjoy spontaneous conversation. You, know, you really want to be able to talk to people back and forth in a fairly free-flowing, unrehearsed way. Of course, it could be argued that the, one of the central final messages of the rehearsal is rehearsing doesn't really work all that well. Uh, life really is kind of unpredictable, but I'm, I don't know. How are you processing all this? Yeah. Well, it, it definitely is through my, through, through the, through the, that fact about me that I love spontaneous conversation, but I loved it. I thought it was fantastic, but I, but part of why is because it feels like to me, you know, the apotheosis of what seems to be like a 20, the 21st century, anxiety about behavior. How am I supposed to behave? What should I do? What should I think about this? What am I supposed to say? Who, you know, how do we, how do we react to this? I hear that so much from my students and, and younger people, I would say. And, and I think it's, it's because, and, you know, in a way, my answer is, well, just how do you react? What do you have to say? But I think a lot of people, I'd be curious to hear from the younger people on the panel about that too, but it seemed to have this fear that, you have to curate or construct your identity in order to be acceptable to other people. So you have to really study and worry and fret about how you're going to do that. And so this show is just so much about that in a, in a, in a just such an engaging and wonderful way that, that I found it just to be amazing. All right. I'm a little surprised, but let's hear from one of those younger people on the panel. Sam? (laughs) I feel like I'm the worst younger person. You kind of are. Um, I kind of am. I don't know. I didn't really think that this was like malicious or mean. I honestly, what I was thinking about is like, what am I watching? Like, is this funny? Is this meta? Is this dramatic? Is this about the contestants? Is this about Nathan himself? I'm not, I've never been a Nathan Fielder fanboy, but I think he's putting a lot of his own social anxieties into this show and like really trying to decipher okay how does human emotion work how do social situations work because i don't know i'm someone who probably doesn't look at social situations in the way you're supposed to and i have these thoughts to myself like huh should i have said that is it is this the appropriate time to take a drink of water like i I, he like it sounds ridiculous but it is something that goes through the minds of people who maybe don't assimilate as easy as everyone else does and that's the sense i get from nathan fielder so i don't see this as malicious or mean i just see it as kind of like an investigation of whatever the hell human interaction is today right i mean i have to say sean i found of the four episodes i found two and three really really gripping i mean this is not a spoiler at all to say that starting in episode two he does he recruits or he finds this woman named angela who is a pretty excessive version of being a christian these days um she she for example believes that Google either is the devil or is controlled by the devil or, you know, but it's that kind of thing. Uh, And she's getting, I think, a little, uh, her biological clock is ticking. She's thinking about, she'd still like to become a parent. And so they rehearse all this. And there is a lot of very 
very funny fourth wall stuff where it turns out that where they are, there are rules about how long a child actor can work in a given day. So they can't just use the same three-year-old child to be the three-year-old child. Uh, they need because they, they have to work in like four-hour shifts and you see them sneaking children in and out of windows <laughs> in order to, to take I, over I their I can just imagine people listening and saying, what? Yeah, it's almost impossible to explain this whole thing. And the premise yeah. is, is that over a very short time, uh, she is going to be a parent of a child from an infant to, I think, the age of 18. I think we're somewhere around 15, 16 right now. But, um, you know, I mean, I thought that that stuff was really, really brilliant. And Sean, he seemed to have it kind of under control, too. I mean, it's always a little bit out of control, but he seemed to have what was funny about it and absurd about it fully under his control. By episode four, I wasn't so sure <laughs> sure anymore that even Nathan knew what he was doing. And I was thinking, maybe they need like an older, more powerful director to say, no, Nathan, you can't do that anymore. But um, what are your thoughts? Well, well I think uh, even the episode four kind of spiraling part of it is by design. I, I think like that's the thing that makes me such a fan of this show um, is that so much of what people try to attempt to do with cringe comedy uh, of, of over the last, you know, 10 or so years is not thoughtful at all. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, it, it's so premised on just being awkward or weird or mean or, or like um, disrespectful or, or aggressive in some way to, to generate a response. The thing that's brilliant about Nathan Fielder is that is that he's thought out all these like when he when he's sitting down and he has the flow chart in front of him and he's like <laughs> the line he's going to say next he is on the paper or the line of person he's going to say in response to him is on the paper like that is so funny not only just as a bit but it's also like if that the, that level of thought going into the show is what makes it not just like um you know some some viral video of somebody like interviewing someone on the street and saying something like rude to them and getting their response it's so thoughtful even as it seems like a, a thing that like, like people say, like argue about whether it's mean or not. I think, I think there is like a, um, he's laughing at these people. He's also laughing at himself. He's laughing at us for like, um, the way we as Americans will sign up to do anything. You want to put me on a TV show? Sure. I'll sign up to have 12 different children play my child in a house that I've never been. Like it's, it's absurd, but like the thoughtfulness is what makes it uh, successful to me. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go Can ahead. I just say, yeah. It, it, because it's because he takes it seriously. Like you really feel like he has that computer strapped to his body and he really takes those flow shots, um, charts really seriously. He's not goofing on him. Right. That's why I also didn't think it was mean. Yeah, I love the whole thing he does with the laptop. It's like you know, there used to be a guy named Gary Wright who had a song, a song called Dreamweaver, and he always had his keyboard slung you know, in front of him like that with these little straps on his <laughs> shoulders and stuff. And it really is like for Nathan, it's his musical instrument. He's playing this stuff. But I also feel like, Sean, I just want to come back to you for a second about this because I think one of the really interesting things about what you just said was I'm thinking in particular about a series like Barry. So Barry takes place, uh, among other things, in an acting class presided over by Henry Winkler uh, as this, you know, kind of semi-fraudulent acting teacher uh, who doesn't know that he has this sociopathic hitman uh, anywhere in his class. But what's really interesting about this is sort of what the people in the class put up with, you know, from from these circumstances and from from the Henry Winkler character's overall fraudulence. And what's kind of amazing about episode four is, I mean, Fielder, he kind of reenacts that idea. He starts a, an acting class called the Fielder Method, which is only to prepare people for this completely bizarre, presumably one-off acting experience in this weird experiment he's doing. 
and and Sean, for the most part, it looks like everybody's going along with that idea. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what's successful about it, right? And that's and that's what like you know, as a uh, a rejoinder or, or as a uh, rebuttal to the the uh, this guy's being mean. These people are accepting it. They're they're signing up for it and they're sitting through it. Like there's, they, I'm they, at any point these people would say, I'm not going to do this anymore. This is stupid, um, and they're not doing it. So that, that says something about them. That says something about us. And like you said, like. You know, sometimes you see scenarios on TV shows like, would that really happen in real life? Like, like uh, Gene Cousineau and Barry. Like, would people actually like, like, sit through this class? Absolutely, they would. Like, because like Nathan Fielder, the the Fielder method that he uh, portrays isn't even as um, successful as Gene Cousineau is supposed to be in Barry, and he's not even successful. You know what I mean? So it's like people will, will sign up for anything at the chance to like be on TV or get an opportunity. Like, oh, this will make me a better actor. Maybe I'll be famous in the future. So as things go along here, Irene, and this is the part that's really hard to explain, and I won't really try to do it other than to say in episode four, it gets even more complicated and kind of reticulated to a point where there are rehearsals for other rehearsals. There's a, there's one moment where uh, I don't even know how to describe this anymore, but, but a, uh, an actor who's preparing to play another person starts to kind of present on his own terms a dilemma dilemma similar to the to the I can't do it see it's just not going to work at all or at one point there's somebody in the acting class let's say his name is Kyle or something who's really not going along with it and Nathan Fielder's solution is to do rehearsals where he's Kyle and somebody else plays him in order to you know and but I I think in a way he is kind of scraping his thumbnail a little bit against the skin of reality, right? Like, what is real life? What, is, what are real social interactions? To what degree is anything particularly genuine? Uh, and, and at that, he manages to induce, at least in me, Irene, a certain level of paranoia about all that. Uh, paranoia in what sense? Well, just like what other what other interactions are as falsified as this? Like, what what is the rest of my day composed of of other things? Sort of, you know, not Truman Show type other things, but other things that are incompletely genuine. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, um, I I think that is that that is what's. Go- I mean, I I actually I I, I have a, an old friend that I haven't seen in a while, and I found out she's a life coach now. Um, which is a new thing, career for her. And she was talking to me and I sort of felt like she is, is she just putting on the life coach things that she was taught to do? Like, it just didn't feel like a real conversation. Mm. And so maybe that's the same kind of thing. Like, how does anyone know that they're having a, that, that they're engaging with the real world or a real person in any kind of way? Maybe we don't know. And, it, and, and I think that is what the show is scraping up against, but it's also... It's also, um, y- you know, in a way, forcing us to think, forcing me to think, wow, I just love being spontaneous, as, you know, as opposed to all this. But it's it's like a manifestation of of our anxiety in a way that's really, really interesting. All right, Sam, you'll get, you go ahead. Sam, you, yeah. you get the last word on this. I, I, I do feel like this is a series that you have to shunt aside your own agenda. If you're going to watch this series, you can't try to make it into something that you want it to be. If you're going to enjoy it at all, you're just going to have to kind of lie back and, and let it wash over you. Yeah, and I learned that in like the last 10 minutes of the last episode. And I try not to give away spoilers, but uh, Nathan has a choice interaction with his then 15-year-old son after he hadn't seen him for nine years, which was really nine days. And for a brief moment, it is really deadly serious. Like, I feel like I'm watching Degrassi The Next Generation. 
and it gets melodramatic, very heartfelt. And there's just these like moments and glimmers of the real Nathan or how I perceive him to be that make me think that this whole thing is a lot more sentimental than maybe our laughter gives off. And what I was trying to say earlier and expand on is that like, it took me a while, like to learn certain social situations. And I, in my head, sometimes have a flow chart when and I know it sounds crazy because, you know, I'm on WMPR, the Colin McElroy show. Uh, but so once in a while, like when I'm talking to people, like I do have to kind of remember like, oh, this is how a normal conversation goes. And I assume Nathan's the same way. And this is just a representation of that. OK, I'm just looking at my chart. Uh, Sam says, I know this sounds crazy. And I say, OK, what I say is you're fine, Sam, but we have to go to a break. That's what it says in the next triangle. All right. So we do have to go to a break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations. We'll begin with a spin Traveling in the world of my creation What we'll see will defy Explanation All right, we're back with our terrific panel. Time to make some recommendations and endorsements and things like that. Sam, why don't you get us started? Um, I'm going to have two recommendations. The first is a James Baldwin's 1964 short essay book, Nothing Personal. Um, I've been reading it a lot. It's very relevant to today. It's a fun bedside read about the crippling society that existed in 1960 and pervades today. Um, and then I'm also going to recommend the most exciting album of the summer, Steve Lacey's Gemini Writes. Um, his single Bad Habits has kind of emerged as the underdog song of the summer and the song I most recently bullied Colin into listening to. This is true. This is true. I, I have a, a, phone, a phone message just to prove that. Um, <laughs> I have the SMS proof of it. Uh, all right. So two great choices from Sam Hattleman. Sean Murray, how about you? Uh, I want to recommend uh, Industry, H- uh, HBO, uh, HBO's Industry, airs on Mondays. Um, it's a great show. Season two just started, uh, two episodes into the season. They're only eight episodes a season, so it's not hard to jump into. I've described it to people as, uh, it's like Succession if every character was Greg. Because uh, no one, like, like everyone is as, just as clueless as you are, as the viewer, about what they're talking about. But you don't need to understand. It's a show about, like, these people who work at a, uh, these young people who work at a bank uh, in London doing, like, trading. And there's a lot of sex and drugs and trading talk. But none of the trading talk makes any sense to anyone who doesn't work in trading. But you don't need to understand it because the emotional, uh, like, journeys that the characters are on are so much more important. And that's what the show makes the show good. And also the sex and drugs is fun. But, like, it's a really good, uh, some really good storytelling on that show. And season two is, I think, even better than the first season. Industry. Are there any, I'm aware of it. I just, now I'm going to check it out. Are there any well-known actors or anything in it? Or are we mostly looking at unknowns? No, mostly unknowns. Uh, I think it's her name, uh, Mahela Harold. Uh, she's in uh, that movie, Bodies, 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 uh, that's coming out uh, this week, I believe. But she's not uh, super famous or anything. Um, yeah, it's it's mostly uh, like either unknowns or like, oh, I remember that guy from that movie or whatever. Yes. But uh, yeah, right. there's a lot of uh, British actors as well, so you wouldn't know them. All right, um, Irene Papoulos, how about you? Um, I just, I just, I just added one because it's. Uh, I want to endorse Sean for for admitting to having a flow chart in his head when he makes decisions because I think we all do. I mean, I think I do too. I think and, Sam was the one who admitted for, that, but that's okay. Okay, Sean, uh, Sam, I'm sorry, Sam, for saying that um, because I think we all we all 
we all do that, but but to admit that is there's something that that can transcend it, you know, just to say like, all right, I'm going to say this. And so I want to endorse thinking about, you know, like, what does it mean to really be honest with people and not to do something because you think you're supposed to or say something, but just to actually, because you actually have it to say and what people can you say that to and be that way with. I don't know. I'm just sort of thinking that way after you said that, Sam. And um, but I also want to there's Showtime. We haven't we didn't talk about Showtime. So I wonder how that fits into the whole the whole thing we were talking about earlier. But there's three things on Showtime really quick. One is Z-Way, which is so much fun. I've just been watching it for to cheer me up. And um, she makes me laugh. She, it's kind of like a woman doing being like a trying to be like a John Oliver or um, or Hassan Minaj but she's very, very funny and she, and it's quick, much, much, much quicker than those shows, sometimes too quick. She kind of winks at academic theory. She's really, she's really aware of what's going on in the world. She brings in cultural issues and she's just great. And and the name of the show is Z-Way, which is Z-I-W-E. And then there's also City on the Hill, which Kevin Bacon is just so good in that, that it's so worth watching for that. And also this movie I saw on there called Stillwater with Matt Damon that is kind of the kind of movie that I think is just going to disappear, but he it's, it's such a great portrait of a, of a kind of um, redneck character, but he ends up going to France and there's his daughter and the woman, the French woman in it was in the show, call my agent. And she was so funny in that. And she's great in this. Her name is Camille Cotin. But anyway, so that, that's that's it. Good. I've seen Stillwater, actually. Um, so um, I'm going to, first of all, I want to say that Oscar Isaac is both Guatemalan and Cuban in extraction. Uh, so I want to set, so I don't Huzzah. get, I, I don't want to get tweets about yeah. that. So uh, let's get that out of the way. So before HBO pulls it, you should watch Luck. Luck was this one one season series about horse racing, which closed not because it wasn't good, but because the horses kept dying. Uh, and... <laughs> Which was very sad, actually, and and, and horrible. Uh, but if you can sort of get past that idea, it is really terrific. It has one of the most amazing casts. It's Dustin Hoffman, but it's also Dennis Farina and Nick Nolte. And then all these great character actors like John Ortiz and Kevin Dunn uh, and Michael Gambon. And I could go on and on and on. There are all these just terrific sort of aging uh, character actors that – you know and love and maybe recognize but don't know their names. Um, and then apropos of everything we've been talking about, um, there's an Albert, Albert Brooks's first movie. It's a movie called Real Life. And it's kind of about it's, – it's an obvious precursor to, to Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal. It's a guy who's trying to make a movie. It was based on The Loud Family in the 1970s, which was a PBS series of the same – he's trying to make a movie about a real family and not mess with it too much and just show real life. But then he can't stop meddling with it. Albert Brooks plays this uh, tyrannical director or manipulative director. Charles Grodin uh, is a veterinarian who's the father of the family. Real life. You can get it on some of the free t- uh, services or rent it or something. I recommend it. We got to go. We got to go. But thank you very much to the wonderful panel and to everybody else who helped out.
So we're going to do something unusual here. We've just completed our regularly scheduled episode of The Nose, and we decided to do sort of an extra little mini podcast about one thing. I'm not quite sure why we're dealing with it this way, although I do have to tell you something, once again, kind of break the fourth wall a little bit. This is not an interesting detail at all, but every day I come into the studio, and there's a Slack feed here, and there's another thing called uh, Assistant Producer. I basically just have to let everybody else who I can't see uh, know that I'm here and I'm ready to get going. And so I sign in simply by typing the words, I am Groot. And I do this every day. I've been doing it for years. They've developed Groot emojis so they can respond to me. Uh, and I guess the other thing that I have to tell you before I introduce the panel uh, is Groot, if this means nothing to you, uh, Groot is a character in the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. Groot is more or less a tree uh, when we first meet him in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, he's a big tree, but he's, you know, he, he can say, I am Groot. That is the only thing that he ever says. Uh, he's, you know, kind of constructively violent most of the time. <laughs> uh, but somehow or other, uh, I forget exactly the circumstances, but because of something that happens to him, he is reduced to a tiny, tiny, tiny pre-sapling, a baby Groot. Uh, and uh, what is cl- what has clearly happened here is that uh, animators have fallen in love with this baby Groot, uh, and they want to do something more with him. So there is a, there are now five animated short subjects available on Disney Plus in a series called I Am Groot. Here to talk about those, Sam Hadleman works in music publishing public, public ah, he works in music public <laughs> relations. I shouldn't try to do an extra show after the first one. And hosts the Sam Hadleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean, S-H-A-W-N, podcast. And Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Um, Irene, I'm going to begin with you because uh, your life is is spent because you are constantly pursuing academic subjects and thinking deeply about life. I knew almost without having to be told that you would have no idea who Groot was. Uh, so talk about what, what your sort of first blush experience here with baby Groot might have been. Okay. Yes, you are correct um, that is, in that assumption. And so my experience was at first I was thinking, of course, of my child who's now 26, but I was thinking how – I mean, he loved Teletubbies who didn't really talk. So how would he think about this? And and I think he would love the visual, like just the, the representation. He's a he's a charming character. But why the machine guns? I I you know, why did <laughs> why why was there so much why did there have to be so much violence in there? That that kind of bothered me. And I think even it would have bothered bothered him as a it seems like it's it would be pitched if it's pitched for children to very young children relatively, but who is it pitched for? Is it for adults or what are these shorts for? I don't even know. All right. Well, fair questions. I I think if you'd seen the Guardians movies, you'd understand why they're so violent. But I mean, Sean, in a way, that's what they're playing with a little bit. They're playing with the charm. I mean, what if Teletubbies were really occasionally quite violent? Uh, And and what if Teletubbies were, when they weren't violent, just kind of borderline crabby, which is Baby Groot often has this kind of scowl on his face, both in the Guardians movies and and in these shorts. What if he were both charmingly innocent, like a Teletubby, and also capable of great mayhem? I, I think that's the knife says they're running their thumb down. That that seems to be what it is uh, for me as well. I mean, that's like in in the the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, Groot is you know full grown tree, 
And um, so, and you know, it's absurd to have a tree wielding a machine gun, but it's like at least when he's an adult, you can say like, uh, you know, he's allowed to do this. And then in the second Guardians movie, he becomes a little tree, or he becomes a little tree at the beginning, of the end of the first movie. But that's not the point. The point is, in the second movie, he's a little guy, and now he's got guns and he's got bombs and stuff. And it's like, well, this is absurd. It's like, are we allowed to let him do this? And it's like, there's a scene in Guardians two where he's like supposed to be uh setting off a bomb, but like he doesn't. He's not comprehending right because he's just a little baby tree, and, and they have to like tell him not to press this button and blah blah blah. It's it's just a fun little thing. It's a lark, you know. It's like it's you know, I, I think these 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 shorts are. Um, I'm glad that they're shorts. I'm glad they're five minutes. I'm glad they didn't try to turn this into like a full length. Uh, not even full five minutes. They're like three and a half minutes. I'm glad they didn't try to turn this into like a full thirty minute uh, uh, show because there's not enough story there. It's it's you know it is an interesting dynamic at play. It's like. Um, like the episode where he's like stepping on that civilization and like him learning about like he's like I'm a god for a second and then like they're attacking me. There's interesting things at play, but it's not it's not a lot. All right, so uh, before we go to Sam, uh, it was hard for us to pull a clip because this is very close to a silent movie comedy style. The exception being the uh, I believe fifth and final uh, short where we get to hear a little bit more thanks to the appearance uh, of Rocket, the raccoon who is voiced by Bradley Cooper. Uh, Vin Diesel, by the way, is the voice of Groot at all times. Although amusingly, uh, at the end when they run the credits, you find out like who, which Slovenian actor was saying "I am Groot" <laughs> in Slo in the Slovenian version of this, uh, and and so on. But anyway, here's a, a little clip from short number five called "Magnum Opus." Groot, are you okay? Groot, are you dead? Oh yeah, you're right there. What the? Wait, are those the ship's fuel rods? Ah! Wait, how'd you get the walls wet and on fire? Wait, what's that? Is that Drax's soap? He's been looking everywhere for this. He won't shut up about it. Groot, why does it look like a bomb went off in here? Groot? A bomb did go off! What? How did you get... Hey, hey, don't give me that look. Don't think you're getting out of this by being cute. What, why are you handing me this? What is this, more trash? Better be a written apology. Let me see this. Oh. Oh, look how big you are. Oh, this is very nice. Hey, we gotta get this frame. Put up the, uh, the top of the fridge. I can't stay mad at you, can I? We should say one of the conceits of the movie uh, and the franchise itself is that Rocket the Raccoon, who's this genetically altered and pretty vi very violent and s kind of psychopathic uh, figure, is in loco parentis with Groot. He's the only person who seems to be able to understand every time uh, Groot says, I am Groot, it means something else. And through inflections, he somehow or other knows what it actually does mean. So it was fun to see that relationship again in these little shorts. But but Sam, I, Sam first of all, all we should say if you're a busy person, the whole experience of watching the five shorts, I believe, encompasses 15, 15 minutes. So, I mean, there's that, right? Yeah. Um, I I hate that you already talked about how he's voiced by Vin Diesel, because I think that's hysterical and something that's kind of like overlooked. Um, but I did think it was funny that like I was more entertained with these shorts than I was like the last three Marvel releases. I'm so marveled out. I'm so good on all of it. I don't care about phase five, six, seven. I'm just maybe I'm an adult. Maybe I pay taxes now. But I was really entertained by Groot. I was like, oh, my God, this is adorable. This is so funny. Like, of course, there's like a smart little like, you know, obviously the thing that Sean mentioned where he is a god. And he steps on these like little guys. But I was just like, I can take this at face value. It's like adorable. Also, it's like a mute. Like you said, it's almost like a silent film. So that you have to have that 
aspect to it. Like, there's a little bit of a complications, but overall, just kind of adorable. Right. We should say that that observation and others uh, really belong to our producer, Jonathan McPants, who is the only person to write any kind of detailed analysis about this as we were getting ready to do this thing. And Irene, it does. You know, Jonathan pointed out you you can't watch it without thinking of Charlie Chaplin because there's very little that's spoken here. It's slapstick comedy. And, you know, and to your point about violence— one thing that I would say is that slapstick comedy is violent. In fact, one of the keys, I believe, to slapstick comedy, one of the things that makes us laugh is that something really painful is happening to Inspector Clouseau or Buster Keaton or whoever. It's not happening to us, and we kind of know it's mostly not real. And so there's a kind of release that comes with that. Uh, but um, I'm also, Irene, just thinking also about maybe little kids who've never seen Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton or any kind of silent comedy. Uh, I'd rather show them Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton than this, because I think that I don't know. I don't find that release. I mean, remember that show, America's Funniest Home Videos? I was always horrified by those, like, because it's laughing at funny, you know, people's pain. I don't know. I just, I'm sorry. I don't find that very funny. And all those little guys, I felt sorry for them, the little guys in the Groot movie. You know, couldn't he have some kind of, can he help them out a little bit? Because he knew what it was like to be a little guy and from what had just happened to him. No, it didn't. So that's why I feel like it's for kids, especially it's there's there's a toxicness to it because it's kind of it's kind of um sanctioning that kind of violence that in a way that charlie you know charlie chaplin and buster keaton yeah there's there's a certain kind of violence in slapstick and people falling down and stuff but it's not mean in the in the sense that i feel maybe it's you know maybe i should go back and look again but i i didn't feel it as mean in the same way that i do with with this you know there's mean and there's sort of like why would you ever want to collaborate, you know, uh, with, with these people? You, you just have to kill them because they're, they're your enemy. And I know little kids, you know, that appeals to them, the good guys and the bad guys, but something disturbs me about it. I'm, I'm just making a little note on my Nathan Fielder style flow chart. Uh, do not have Tosh 4.0 on or whatever it's Tosh.0 on <laughs> when Irene comes over to visit. Okay. I've got to it. Now I'm not make that He's mistake. funny though. I actually, I think he's kind of funny. But that's but, like people, those the, are, that's people crashing their go-karts into walls at high speeds and <laughs> falling 30 right. feet through the air nah. off their skateboards. Okay. <laughs> I have to rethink this. <laughs> I, I will rethink this. Can I just say, um, I just I feel like this Groot uh, I am Groot I think a, a, a interesting parallel would be like Tom and Jerry right mm-hmm. Tom and Jerry was essentially like a silent uh, cartoon um, they had the Buster Keaton sort of elements to, to it but it's like that, they were very violent but like I didn't get anything like negative out of that it was just like cats and mice are enemies that's you know what I mean like so <laughs> that's what I got out of it I'm not I'm not criticizing Irene necessarily I'm just saying like, I feel like there is there's a certain amount of especially with this group thing where it's like when he's stepping on the, the little the little guys and then like they retaliate it's like I think the, the fact that he is supposed to be like a baby is sort of like he doesn't necessarily understand like why what he did was wrong initially and then he you know what I mean like I think it's it's him sort of understanding it in real time and and like not necessarily dealing with the consequences because why would a a baby tree know to go like you know what i mean like i just i just might have killed all these little guys i'm gonna just put the rock back over here and cover it up and not deal with it you know what i mean i think it's also wrong to mention tom and jerry and not mention itchy and scratchy scratchy, yeah which is which is like 
Itchy and Scratchy was like the version of this it's that the, you it's really the, not like. Right. Well, it's the Tarantino version of Tom and Jerry. The, Itchy and Scratchy, by the way, is a, a series that the Simpson kids watch. Uh, and it's basically Tom and Jerry, but it's blood spattered. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, they and, kill, but they both kill, you know, they both hit each other back and forth. It always goes back and forth as opposed to just killing them. You know, yeah. they don't kill each other and then they're, not, then they're gone. Well, that's <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking about the Wiley Coyote yeah. and the Roadrunner. I was like, you know, Wiley Coyote was trying to essentially commit manslaughter every single or whatever he is, man, like slaughter every Road single episode. Slaughter. Yeah, yeah Roadrunner slaughter every <laughs> single episode. If you think about like the Looney Tunes stuff that you'd be fine with your kids watching, Bugs Bunny's kind of like a homicidal freak if you think about it. So I'm totally grew with fine with Groot taking a misstep when you know Bugs Bunny's out here shooting people during his piano solos. Yeah, like Daffy Duck was getting shot in the face and getting his bill spun around through the back of his head. <laughs> you know but then I mean? he lived. Then he lived to go to to retaliate, right? <laughs> I mean, does that make it different? Yeah, I but what, what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is, right, like thinking about from a, a child's perspective, right? Like if you were going to, I never imitated anything I saw in Looney Tunes or Tom and Jerry or even Itchy and Scratchy, which is my favorite of all three. Um, but, uh, be, but like you don't recognize that like, if you shoot someone in the face, their bill is going to spin to the back of their head and they can put it back. Like, Cause like as a kid, you don't know that's possible. So if you're going to imitate it, you would. And thankfully I don't know anyone who's tried to shoot the, the face off of a duck. <laughs> I, I, that, that's a quote that could be really freestanding, I think. And uh, no, I mean, the, the, the laws of physics in cartoons are different. If you hit somebody in the head with a frying pan, their, sh their head assumes temporarily the shape of the frying pan handle and all that's kind of the way things work. I, I, the one thing that I would say is that I would really recommend to people if, if they're intrigued by Groot or they think they may watch this. One way that you could maybe sort of prepare yourself, and maybe we should have had Irene do this, is to watch the title sequence of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Uh, just to remind people, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy have been hired to deal with an interdimensional space monster that's coming to steal batteries or something. Uh, and while they're having this titanic struggle with this horrible monster that's constantly on the verge of killing them, um, the entire time, kind of in the foreground, Baby Groot, has hooked up uh, a speaker set and he's dancing to ELO's song Mr. Blue uh, in this very sort of joyful way even as like horrible things miss him by inches uh, and in a way it sort of maybe sets the tone I, I guarantee you so that answers my question then Colin about why you would want to have that as your as your as your identity as your, <laughs> your assumed identity right yes yes well also yeah. I, I just know that the animators watched that scene in particular and thought wow he is just fun to animate in terms of his facial expressions and how he moves and what you can get him to do and the fact that it's still he's still ultimately a tree so maybe there's some things you can't have him do uh, I, I just feel like that's that's why there is an I am Groot five part <laughs> animated short series on Disney plus can I say one the last thing of course you can Sean yeah. I think also I think Irene you're probably not going to watch the Guardians movies and I don't blame you. I love those movies, but I don't. I wouldn't blame you for not watching them. But I think the context of who Groot is makes would sort of also uh, spell out a little bit why he's so violent, right? So, like in the the first Guardians movie, him and Rocket Raccoon, who's as Colin mentioned, is a psychopathic, violent person, are like mercenaries, right? Yeah. And then, so then Groot 
is at the end of the movie he gets turned into this little tree so he's still the violent mercenary that he was before it's the same guy but now he's been reduced back to the the mentality of a child right so like he doesn't know he's like he's always dealt with things violently and his best friend and i guess technically his guardian uh rocket raccoon is the most violent person in the universe but he's a baby you know what i mean it's like that juxtaposition (laughs) That like uh, sort thank of like thank you. Yes, yeah. that explains we, a lot. We should have had you, you watch a little bit of Guardians just to prepare you for this. Well, I I didn't expect quite as exo- so exhaustive uh, an exegesis and analysis uh, <laughs> of of the five part fifteen minute long animated Groot series, but I'm thrilled to have had one. So thanks once again to Sam Hadleman, Sean Murray, Irene Papoulis. We're going to go now. Thanks for listening to this podcast extra, and stay with us for other podcast fun. Thank you.